Jesus then left the place and went into the region of Judea, across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them man, male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two of them will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing their little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. Uh, it's good to be here again. It's good to keep working through this series in Mark. Let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Um, God, we thank you so much that uh, we can join together again today. Lord, thank you that you don't just save us as individuals, but you save us as a community. And we pray that as a people now, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would comfort us, and that ultimately, Lord, you would lead us closer to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I don't know if you remember, but in 2014, there was a uh, big controversy in New Zealand from a competition that a radio station had, and uh, the competition was called I Love You Man, and it was to see who had the best friendship in New Zealand between two guys. And uh, the winner of this got a uh, free tickets to the Rugby Union World Cup, um, and the winners, ultimately, who won, ended up getting married together. Two heterosexual men got married to prove that they had the best friendship in New Zealand. Now, uh, there was obviously lots of controversy about this, pretty naturally. Um, but in response, the radio station, uh, one of the guys, he said this uh, in response to all this controversy. In New Zealand, the argument seems to be that if two people want to get married, it's no skin off anyone's nose. So two blokes can have an immense friendship and a strong bond, and I guess some of them would like to be married. I think it's a good thing to, be, to celebrate bromance in a quirky way, and Matt and Travis, who were the guys, really epitomized that. And so these two heterosexual guys got married, and they won these tickets to the Rugby Union World Cup. Now, I don't know what you think about this. Uh, I know that obviously it's a publicity stunt and there's a bit of a joke involved in this. But I think what it actually says is something about our culture and our society, right? New Zealand and Australia. And it's this. It's that we want marriage, right? We want marriage. But ultimately what marriage is, is a little bit confusing. And if we want to end that marriage, that's okay, Right? I mean, there was a story I, I saw on TV a few weeks ago about a guy that got married to one of his friends who was a girl just to prove a point and the next day filed for divorce. 
right? See, as a society, we want marriage, but when it comes to what exactly that means and how long that for and, you know, whether we can get out or not, that's kind of up for grabs. And so what we want to do today is recognize this, that our world, we can't really control what our world says about marriage, but we can get to what the Bible says about marriage. We can understand what God thinks about marriage and what God thinks about divorce. And to do that, we're going to go into this passage and we're going to see that as we understand marriage and and divorce, it's going to have application for us whether we're married, engaged, single or not. We're going to see how this applies to us and ultimately where we turn to find hope. So if you have your Bibles there, the question is, right, what does God say about marriage? What does God say about divorce? And we see this same question is posed to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. It'll be on the screen as well. This is how Mark continues. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What does God say about marriage and divorce? Well, we start with divorce, and here the question is posed to Jesus What does the law, what does God say about divorce? Now, we've got to understand some culture here that's going on. So the Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day, right? They are the strong in society. You know, not only are they men and in a patriarchal society where men had the power, these guys are the, you know, the religious leaders. They're the people who are meant to be at the top, okay? And they come to Jesus and they ask him this question to test him, right? Literally, they want to trap him. Okay, and the trap is, what does God say about divorce? Now, interesting trap, right? Don't think that's much of a trap today, but here was the trap for Jesus. Okay, he can either say, so there were two camps on divorce, right? One camp is the liberal view of divorce, right? So this was the picture that anyone could get a divorce, and it doesn't actually matter what it's about. You can do this, and that's lawful. So um, as far as Uh, People were concerned, they would say that any action, if it's indecent, they can get a divorce, right? So literally there is a writing about this where they said, uh, some of the people said, um, if if the dishes aren't clean, that counts as indecency, right? And you can get a divorce about that. Or um, if there's actually writing about this, if you find a more attractive woman, that's indecency on your wife's behalf and you can get a divorce on that. Right, so, so there's this view on divorce then that's pretty liberal, right? The one camp, you know, you can get a divorce pretty much about anything, right? Doesn't sound like a good marriage to be a part of, but that was where people stood, okay? They stood on this camp free to get a divorce if that's what they wanted. Now, the Pharisees, the reason this is a trap is because the Pharisees stood on this camp, okay? They stood in this side happy to get a divorce, a divorce if that was what they wanted. Then you get the other camp, okay? This is the more conservative camp. This is the people who would say, actually, marriage and divorce isn't something we want to be flippant about. It's something that we want to actually hold on to as something God made and be careful with. And so these were the conservatives. Okay, now, the conservatives would say that marriage is something that God ordained and planned. And if we're going to break that through divorce, we need to make sure that it's only through marriage vows being broken. Okay, so, so the marriage vows being broken, things like sexual immorality or abuse, that's where the marriage uh, vows are broken. That's where we can get a divorce. Okay, so there's the two camps. Now, the reason it's a trap is this. Jesus can either agree with the Pharisees, right, side with them, and the Pharisees are justified in their position of divorce, or he can sit with the conservatives, 
But remember what happened a few chapters ago, if you were with us early in the year when we looked at Mark, King Herod put John the Baptist in jail and then killed him because John the Baptist stood in this conservative camp, right? Said to King Herod that his wife, uh, that his marriage to his brother's wife wasn't lawful, right? Wasn't right. And so John the Baptist gets put into jail and then killed. So the trap is then Jesus has agree with the Pharisees or potentially be put in jail and be killed. That's why it's a trap and ultimately a pretty good trap. Right? I mean, that's a lose-lose situation in terms of Jesus. Is he going to side with the Pharisees or is he going to potentially get killed in jail? And so how does Jesus respond to this question with his back against the wall? Well, we see it in verse 3. He says to them, What did Moses command you? Uh, and they said in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, what Jesus is asking there, first five books of the Bible Right? They attribute to Moses' writing. Okay, So he's asking, what does the law say about this? And they respond in verse 4, Moses permitted to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then Jesus says in verse 5, it was because of your hard hearts that Moses wrote you this law. Okay, So, so what's Jesus going to explain about divorce? How is he going to answer this? Well, what he does for us is he corrects some misunderstanding about divorce and then he explains and helps us see what divorce is. And the Pharisees have a misunderstanding about divorce, right? And that comes from their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, which is where their response is from in verse 4. So Deuteronomy 24 says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes uh, displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, right? Then, So it's basically saying, right, if she's indecent, he can give her a certificate of divorce and then she goes away and then verse 3 to the end is basically saying if she goes and marries another man, it means that, and then that same thing happens, she can't marry the first guy again. Okay, a little bit confusing, but that's what it meant. The certificate of divorce was to stop the first man divorcing his wife and then going back and forward, that kind of idea. Right now, the Pharisees take this verse as a how-to guide on how to get a divorce. Right, because in their minds... They think that they are the judge of what's indecent. So dishes aren't clean, that's indecent, right? Um, more attractive woman, indecent. You know, if you put the toilet paper on the wrong way and it's facing out instead of facing in, indecent. And so in their minds, they use this as a how-to guide for how to get a divorce. But Jesus corrects this. Okay, and he says this in verse 5, this was written because of your hard hearts. And what Jesus is doing here in this moment is saying, Deuteronomy 24, this passage here, isn't a how-to guide on marriage and divorce. But rather, Deuteronomy 24 is an emergency guide when things go wrong. Okay, so, so it's not a how-to guide. It's an emergency guide when things go wrong. And in this moment, Deuteronomy 24 acts as a safeguard for the weaker party. So it's kind of like this. Um, if you've been flying recently, when you get on a plane at the start, if you listen and you don't pull your book out or watch your movie straight away, the flight attendants need to take us through what happens in an emergency. And what they say is, okay, if the, I mean, they don't say if the plane is crashing or, you know, if the, the glasses get blown open. But what they say is, um, in the case of an emergency, what's going to happen is the oxygen mask is going to drop down 
and then your job in case of an emergency is to put the oxygen mask on and then help others around you after that. Okay, now, now the thing is in that moment, in the case of an emergency, this is what you do, right? You use the oxygen mask. Now, we all know that that's not how you need to fly. It's not a how-to guide on what to do when you're on a plane, right? Like, you don't see people with an oxygen mask walking through the plane. I've never seen a scuba diver on a plane just holding his oxygen in. That's not how you do it. But in the case of an emergency, that's actually going to be helpful, and it's going to provide air to people that couldn't breathe. Okay, now, Deuteronomy 24 acts in the same way as that, it's not a how-to guide. It's not a how to live your life, how to get married, how to get divorced. Instead, it's, it's what, to hap- what needs to happen in an emergency situation to provide air to those who need it. Okay, so, so the Pharisees misunderstand this. They abuse this text to continue to abuse their wives and do whatever they want to do in marriage. Right? That's how the Pharisees read this. But what Jesus does is he corrects their misunder- misunderstanding and for us, helps us see what divorce is. Helps us to see how God thinks about divorce. Now, let me explain in Deuteronomy 24 how this was a safeguard. Okay, Because it's kind of cool and I think interesting in some ways. See, in their society, it was a patriarchal society. Which meant men had the power, men could do whatever they wanted to do. Right? Like that, that's kind of how it played out. So if the man decided that the wife was indecent, he could do whatever he wanted. But what Jesus does is he points out that Deuteronomy 24 is actually a safeguard to women in that society because for them to write a certificate of divorce, right? And um, Lane, thanks for the reminder, that's not the golden ticket, right? Just clarifying that. Uh, But if the, the man was to write the wife a certificate of divorce, it meant this, it meant that uh, it safeguarded her for two reasons. Firstly, it meant that he could no longer marry her again. Okay, so it was to stop men from going from one woman to the next woman and then back to the first woman and then to another woman and then back to... It was to stop that. If the woman had a certificate of divorce, she couldn't actually get remarried to the first person. Right? That's the first way it safeguarded her. But the second way it safeguarded her was to actually mean that after she got a divorce, she could marry someone else. Right? So in a society that's patriarchal, men have the power, women can't work. This is a safeguard to the women. God actually, in his law, helps uh, in a patriarchal society where women are pushed down, actually gives them kind of a lifeline here. Right? So, so we see Jesus corrects their misunderstanding, but what he does for us is he also helps us see what God says about divorce. Right? And what we see through Mark chapter 10 and Deuteronomy 24 and in the scope of the Bible is what God thinks about divorce is this. It's not desirable, but it's also not evil. Okay, It's not desirable, but it's, it's not evil. And this is important to see. So it's not desirable, right? We, uh, this week, uh, Emily and Joe, one of the young adults at church, got engaged. We celebrated that a few weeks ago. And Elizabeth and I started uh, pre-marriage counseling with Emily and Joe. Now, when we do that, the first session that we have with them is not a session of how to get divorce, right? We don't talk about prenup and you know, when it all falls apart, there's certificates in the church building, you just need to take one of them out, write your name on it, and that's fine. That's, that's not how you, you start a marriage. It's not desirable to get a divorce, but it's not evil. And in some cases, 
divorce, like oxygen in an emergency situation, is going to be the air that people need to breathe to survive. Right? So, so we don't desire it, but we also don't desire emergency situations. And in the case where health is at stake, physical, emotional, or spiritual health, divorce is actually, can actually be in that case, in an emergency situation, the air that people need to survive. That actually the best situation, because the marriage vows have been broken, the best thing for that person to do is to actually leave for the sake of their health. Right? It, it's not desirable, but it's not evil. So we won't be the church that says in the case of uh, abuse or in the case of where people are being mistreated, the strong mistreat the weak, we won't be the church that says you just need to grit your teeth and push through this. Sometimes it's the air that people need. Sometimes. Now, we don't desire it. We don't want that. But we don't want the emergency situation. Now, we should know here we're not talking about clean dishes, Right? We're not talking about, you know, you find a more attractive woman or man. That, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about marriage vows being broken. And so we see in this passage and we see throughout the scope of the Bible, God's picture of divorce. It's not desirable, but it's not evil. And so what Jesus does is corrects their misunderstanding. But while he's at it, he also wants to explain marriage and help us understand marriage. And he does that from verse 6 on. He says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus corrects misunderstanding of divorce and shows what God thinks about divorce. And then he corrects their misunderstanding of marriage and helps us see what God understands about marriage. See, the Pharisees did have a misunderstanding of marriage. In their society, men had the power. Men were the kings of the home. Men could decide if they wanted that the woman was being indecent and get a divorce. Men were lords of the marriage. But what Jesus wants us to see and wants them to see is that men aren't kings of marriage. God is the lord of marriage. The Pharisees aren't lord of the marriage. Men aren't lord of the marriage. Women aren't lord of the marriage. God is lord of the marriage. And he spells this out by explaining this to us in these verses because he says, you know what? It was actually God's idea in the first place. God invented marriage. God came up with the idea of marriage. God designed it so that a male and a woman would come together, leave their father and mother, and when they come together, they would be joined together as one. The two would become one. So it means that celebrants aren't the ones that join two people together. The states of the law, right, the, the law of the states aren't what joins two people together. Living in a home is not what joins two people together. It is God through marriage that joins two people together. And God's plan in this is that when the two become together, when the two become one, no one would separate that. Right? And, and Jesus' point here to the Pharisees is this God is Lord of marriage. God is the highest authority in marriage. It's not the man. Man can't just choose to do whatever they want and treat the wife however they want. God is ultimately the authority in marriage. Okay, and so Jesus corrects that for the Pharisees, but he also helps us see some stuff here today about marriage as well. And the first thing is this. Culturally, in our society, we need to know what God says about marriage. Right now, we should know that in our world, we can't control what our world says marriage is. 
And ultimately, as our world gets further away from Christianity, the picture of what marriage is is going to get broader and broader, right? Whether it is two heterosexual friends, whether it is a guy just proving a point, whether it's two men or two women who are attracted to each other, or whether it's multiple partners, we can't control what our world says marriage is. But we need to make sure that we know what God says it is. And as a church, we need to protect that. And what God says marriage is, is that a man and a woman come together and what, to, what God joins, let no one separate. Right? That, that's the first thing that it means for us. But the second thing is a little bit closer to home and it's in our marriages, we know who the Lord of the marriage is. Men, you're not Lord of your marriage. Women, you're not Lord of your marriage. God is Lord of your marriage. Which means that instead of looking down on the other person, we look up. We look up to Jesus and see that he's the king of the marriage, and then we're able to humbly serve him and love each other. That's the way that it's supposed to work, right? I'm not Lord of my marriage. I'm not. God is the highest authority. Now, I know, right, at this point, you know, we have lots of little funny lines in our culture about, you know, who has control in the home, right? I know. We all know these, and the more they make you cringe, normally the, bigger they, the better they are. So you know what I'm talking about, right? The one like, if you want to know who's in charge, talk to the man. But if you want to know what's going on, talk to the woman, right? The one of, yes, the man's the head of the home, but the woman's the neck, right? And we, we have these jokes, and you know, maybe you have a line in your house, right? Now, I know that it's a joke, but also know that normally there is a big grain of truth in this, where in our homes we wrestle for power, right? Where we, yes, someone's in control on paper, but someone else is in reality. But, but what this is showing us is that, that actually God is the head of the home. God is the Lord of marriage. Now, I know, right, biblically, we have different roles in how that plays out. But our first point of call needs to be recognized that God is the Lord of the marriage. God is the highest authority and that our first point is serving him. Okay, so, so that's what it means for us. That's what we see here in this passage as Jesus spells out what marriage is, as he spells out what God thinks about marriage. And in a perfect world, we see God's perfect plan here, don't we? That a man would leave his mother and father, that a woman would leave her mother and father, they would be joined together, and that the two would be joined together, and, and then they would never separate. That's the perfect plan for marriage. Right? And in a perfect world, if we saw that, what we would see is that everywhere, this is what marriage would look like. Here in Australia, I mean, even in New Zealand, and to the ends of the earth, in a perfect world, this is what marriage would look like. And as we read this, isn't it easy to kind of think that, okay, so if this is what marriages look like, if this is what's going to be perfect, then it's going to be easy. And this is how it's going to play out for all of us. But the reality is, is while this is the perfect plan for a perfect world, we don't live in that perfect world. So, so on Thursday night when we had pre-marriage counseling, the question was to Joe and Emily, what do you expect that your marriage is going to be like? Right? And they had some time to think about that. And for Elizabeth and I, we also thought about what we expected when we got married. So on Thursday, we celebrate four years together, and we had to go back and think about what it meant four years ago. What did we expect? And here's what I expected marriage would be like. Three things. Firstly, that it would be easy. Secondly, that we wouldn't fight that much. And thirdly, that I wouldn't need to grow that much. Now, in hindsight, I was very naive 
in that because the reality, right? We don't live in a perfect world. We live in the reality of a fallen world and the reality is marriage is actually really hard. I mean, for for Elizabeth and I, we, in the first two years of our marriage, we fought nonstop. A good week for us was when we fought once, right? That's That's not even a joke. Like, seriously, I was that selfish Right, graciously, I have a gracious wife who is still with me. But, but this is what it looked like. I mean, it was hard. We saw marriage counselors. We went to seek help. Because the reality is, in, in our world, we live in a fallen world. We don't live in a perfect world where the perfect marriage exists. We live in a broken world, a fallen world. And the reality is, when we think about marriage and divorce, the reality is we feel this. Right? I mean, for some of us here today, we feel the pain of broken marriage. For some of us, we, we've experienced that. We're in our marriage, we, we needed to get a divorce. And it hurt. And it left a wake of pain. For some of us, we're here and we feel the hurt of a broken marriage, not our own, but our parents. And we live with a baggage where we don't even know what to do with that. For some of us, we live in the pain where the strong have abused the weak. And we have to try and figure out where to go with this. For some of us, our pain is different and our pain just comes from living with another sinner. Where we say hurtful things to the people we love the most and we have to deal with scars from the people we love the most. And for some of us, our pain is just from existing in a fallen world where we aren't married and we want to be married. We've prayed to be married. We've longed to be married. We want the partner, but it just hasn't come. And so the reality is then we don't live in this perfect world. We live in a broken world where pain exists, where we sit with real hurt and real pain, and real brokenness, because the world is broken. The world is not perfect. So yes, we seek God's perfect plan in marriage, but we live with the reality that pain exists, that brokenness exists, that sin exists. And so the question is then, where do we turn with all this? Realizing that when we speak about marriage and divorce, there is pain involved. Well, this is why I think we get this next passage. Mark doesn't go into what it means to have kids in a home. Instead, he talks about where we turn when we're weak and broken. Because in verse 13, he says this. He says, People were bringing little children to Jesus to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. We see this passage here for the reason Mark is showing us, Jesus is showing us where weak people go, where broken people go, where flawed people go, and it's not to the perfect partner. It's not to marriage. Where we turn in weakness is to Jesus. Right? And we see that through the, this experience with the little children. Right? I mean, Mark records it for us. that He just finished speaking about divorce and marriage, and then these people bring these little children over to Jesus. And, and then the disciples, in typical disciple fashion, rebuke them. 
But Jesus says, don't rebuke them. Let them come to me because the little children have a place in this kingdom and anyone who wants to receive the kingdom of God needs to receive this like a little child. Now, Jesus' point here is this, right? See, in that day, in the pecking order in the home, children were the lowest of the lows, right? So there's even this story. um, I found it this week. There was a letter written in 1 BC from a dad to an expectant wife that just illustrates how weak children were seen in that culture. And the dad said to the wife, who's expecting a baby, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, cast it away. That's how they they viewed children in that culture. If it's valuable to us, well, well, we'll keep it. But if it's not, we'll get rid of it. Children in this society were weak. They were the low. They were the lowly. They were the broken. They were the flawed. But what Jesus does in this moment is he flips that. He shows God has a heart for children, and he does something bigger than that for us. He shows where broken people go to find hope, where flawed people go, where weak people go, and we find the answer here. It's when we go to Jesus. He says, those who come like little children get the kingdom of God, where people go who feel the pain of what we've been speaking about. We turn to Jesus because what we see in Jesus is a king who came not in power, but in weakness. Jesus knew that the world was broken. He knew that this did, we didn't exist in utopia where this perfect world exists. Jesus got that. We experience pain. The people experience strong mistreating the weak. We experience the hurt of loneliness and isolation. Jesus knew that about our world, and he entered into the world to fix that problem. But he, didn't, he wasn't going to fix that problem in power. He did it by becoming weak. Jesus became weakness to fix this problem. So what we see in Jesus then is someone who was isolated, who became lonely, who had his closest friends abandon him. What we see in Jesus is someone who was abused and who suffered and died. He became weakness. But he became weakness to give us a hope of something better than this world. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, belongs to such as these. A kingdom of God where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, where there is no loneliness, where there is no death, where there is no abuse, where there is no isolation, where the strong will not mistreat the weak. Jesus came in weakness to give us a hope of something greater, the kingdom of God. See, the answer to our problems, to our flaws, to this broken world is not finding the perfect person. It's not finding the perfect marriage. The answer to all of our issues is found in Jesus, who became weakness for us, who loves us and gives us a hope of a place where there is no weakness. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you came into our world, that you became weak for us. God, thank you that we can have a hope that looks beyond our world. Lord, we know that in our world, brokenness exists and pain exists. We have experienced that. God, thank you that the answer to our problem is not found in the perfect person or in marriage but it's found in Jesus. 
And thank you that as we come to Jesus in weakness, we find someone who loves us and secures us and gives us a hope of the kingdom of God, where there will be no tears and no pain and no suffering. So help us, Lord, in our weakness, turn to Jesus. We pray this in his name.